Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Come, my fount of every blessing. Amen. Since I heard that I was coming to Hattiesburg about three years ago, I had put on, like, one of the, at the top of the list of things to do was to come to Ecclesia and worship with you guys. I did not plan to show up here as the preacher for the first time. <laughs> But here I am. Um, I want to start with a story. So a few weeks ago, Jennifer Brown, the pastor here at, at university, she and I took off to Alabama for a couple of days, uh, went to Selma and to Montgomery to do a little, um, a little research for a, a pilgrimage that I'm getting ready to, to take a group on. And so we went to the um, interpretive center there that's across the street from the Edmund Pettus Bridge, did that, and then got ready to walk across to to really make that journey across the bridge. And there was an older African-American man who came to us and said, can I tell you my history? And we said, certainly. So he, he takes us out of the blazing hot sun over to the shaded sidewalk. He has a table set up. And there's, there's these frames of certificates and pictures that clearly have come off the wall of his home. And he's got it all laid out. And he starts pointing one after the other. And he's taken a picture with every president since George W. Minus one. I'll let you figure out who that is. <laughs> and he's got all these certificates, all these thank yous from folks, uh, and appreciation for the work that he has done in the civil rights movement. And then he takes off his, his baseball cap, and he has one more thing to show us, and it's a knot about this big on his forehead. Now, this man is 94 years old, Mr. George Smalley. He was, it was 1965 when Bloody Sunday happened, and he still got this knot, and right down the center of it, you can see the scar. And he talks and tells us the story about how he was there and how he was beaten. And he says, but I have one more thing to tell you. This is the most important part. He said, I forgive them. I forgave them all, because I can't carry around hate in my heart. And I wish I could do justice for the way that he looked. But he was this 94-year-old fella, and you'd think, that's, that's fairly old, right? I hope I make it to 94. But this man had an innocence about him, a childlikeness about him, and he's just sort of bouncing and saying, I forgive him. I can't have hate in my heart. That is not who my Jesus is. So... Um, the lectionary gives us a text tonight on forgiveness, which, if I'm completely honest with you, is a bit of a bummer for me. <laughs> because uh, it seems like the lectionary has given us too many texts on forgiveness for the past six to nine months. 
and I've been fairly open with my congregation about wrestling with forgiveness because quite frankly, there are folks that I don't want to forgive. There are people who have either hurt me or hurt people that I care about. And in my mind, they've done some things that are somewhat unforgivable. And, um, and I don't really want a happy ending there. And so I confess that. And I wrestle with this text, hopefully along with you. But let's look at it and let's see what's happening here. First of all, I need to give you some context because whoever put this lectionary together, they didn't ask me my opinion. And they skipped over so much stuff that's important for where we are. You need to know that Jesus has really just ended his public ministry. And he's come home and he's in this interim space between public ministry and leaving for Jerusalem and the cross. In fact, we're in chapter 18. He leaves in 19 for Jerusalem. So he's this, this interim space. He's got some quality time with his fellas and they have a number of conversations. There's a lot of one-liners in this chapter that we're skipping over in the lectionary. Let me also tell you, and you probably know this one, that only twice in the Gospels is the word, well, in Greek, it's ecclesia. In Mississippi, it's ecclesia, right? It means the church, the gathered faithful ones. It's only used twice in the Gospels, both in Matthew, both spoken by Jesus, and both in reference to Jesus saying that the church, these faithful followers, have the power to bind and loose the power of God, the grace of God in the world. And that what we bind and loose here is bound and loosed in heaven. So that's, that's where we are and what Jesus is talking about. Now, what does he say to these people? Well, I'm glad you asked. So they ask him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he pulls a kid up out of the, the congregation, right? And he says, you see this guy? Unless you become like this one, which in their culture means vulnerable, powerless. Unless you become vulnerable and powerless, you cannot know greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And then when you welcome someone like this, who is also vulnerable and powerless, well, then you've welcomed me. And in the process of doing all this church business, if you happen to offend someone, if you're a stumbling block to someone, just go ahead and cut off your hand, please. <laughs> Get rid of whatever it is that's getting in the way of you and right relationship with the rest. And if in the process you offend someone, for whatever reason they leave, then you leave. You leave the 99 and you go get the one. So Jesus is very clear about what community is supposed to look like. I think you have a good name for your church here. You're doing community really well. But he ends all of those one-liners, all those little lessons with this passage that we read tonight about when someone offends us, how we handle that. So it seems pretty clear here that Jesus assumes there's going to be conflict among us. It's like he knows us. The question about the church is not, you know, whether as Christians we hurt one another, whether or not we fight and disagree and argue. The question for us is how we address it. And for Jesus, he's clear. He says that there is a higher calling for us, and it is one of reconciliation. But what does reconciliation look like? Now, this is 
this is interesting business right here. Mike, if you have figured out how to do this in 15 years and still remain the pastor, I need some tips because I don't know how to make this happen. He starts with, the offended one should go to the offender. Now, who likes that? Anyone other than me conflict avoidant? I really hate conflict, okay? I want conflict to look like me being sad and someone coming and saying, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I really hurt you. That would be great. But instead, it's me as an offended one, perhaps, naming the pain. I don't want to name pain. I want to pick myself up my, by, by my bootstraps, or I want to be mad, or I want to take my toys and go somewhere else, or I want to make them do all the hard work. But it begins with the offended one going to the offender. And if that doesn't restore a relationship, then you take two or three with you, right? That doesn't work. Lord have mercy. You take it before the church. Can you imagine? Have you, have you done that, Mike? Three or four times. How are you still here? I don't know what that would even look like. But I can imagine that if it were a real practice in our churches, we would all feel a little more responsible to the infractures that we experience, right? There's something holy and good about it as terrifying as it is. And if none of that works, Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. <laughs> now, what does that mean? What does that even mean? How has Jesus been treating Gentiles and tax collectors in Matthew? Y'all have been in the Old Testament, haven't you? You've been taught, walking through Genesis. Well, let me tell you what he's been doing with these Gentiles and tax collectors. He's been eating with them. He's been feeding them. He's been healing them. He's even been learning and being changed by them. Y'all talk about that Syrophoenician woman who smarted off to Jesus? That's a good story right there. He's treating them as beloved children of God. He's not putting them in leadership positions in his, in his inner circle. But he's loving them as neighbors. So that's what it looks like to be reconciled, Jesus says. To put relationship over any sort of self-righteousness. Now I need to offer a caveat here. I'm, I'm really aware that there are some really broken people out there who are violent and who are, um, well, they just do damage. They're just destructive folk. And it is not always possible to reconcile with the, those who offend us, all right? But it is possible, as Mr. Smalley showed us, or told us, it is possible to be reconciled within ourselves, with Christ, with the grace that can take us beyond our understanding and our um, ability to really be in relationship with that other person. So why reconciliation? Why does it even matter? Why is Jesus so intent that his followers manage conflict, move beyond conflict? I don't, you probably know this. I'm sure you know this about the church, right? But the early church was radical. I mean, like, truly radical. Was it Paul that writes... Uh, it's, it's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. This is radical inclusiveness in the church of Christ. It is, it is a model for the rest of the world at that time of what it can look like to love your neighbor, to transcend all of these divisions, all of the oppression, all of the pain, and be in relationship with people, be in true community with folk. 
And it's precisely that sort of radical inclusion that still makes us Christians. That is a defining mark of who we are as Christ followers. Is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world that organizes itself around sameness, where we can come together and embrace diversity, uniqueness. Because the truth is, what we know about being Christians is that we are never free from one another. We'll never be free from one another. We are free in one another. That's where we find freedom. And so, that'd be great. And yet conflict in the church, well, let me speak about the Episcopal church. (laughs) And the Baptist church. I grew up Southern Baptist, and I'm not there anymore. So... (laughs) Let me tell you about conflict the way I know it. It more often looks like people just taking their toys and going home. It doesn't look like this model that I see here. Because more often than not, it is, it is the ways of the world that pollute the church instead of the ways of God transcending, and changing, transforming the world. We reduce the church to just an institution or an organization or a club when we refuse to engage this sort of sacred, really difficult and challenging conversation. But when, when we can trust one another, when we can find ourselves powerless and vulnerable, and we can come together where two or three are there under the name of Christ, not in our own names, well then there, there is the body of Christ. And the the church is born and formed. So um, in, my, in my church, we are uh, doing a sort of an emphasis on racial healing and um, having some Sunday school conversations, doing pilgrimage, thing, things like that. As part of my preparation for some of those lessons, I was looking at some data and statistics. There was a really interesting poll that was uh, done last October. And they polled about f- over 4,000 Americans a nationally representative sample, and uh, broke them into four racial categories, white, Hispanic, Asian, and black. And they asked them a set number of questions. The first question was about systemic racism. You can imagine, it was, do you think systemic racism is real? Um, And you can imagine how those, those data, where those numbers fell out. Every group of color said yes. By a strong majority, it is, a, it is a real part of our lives. And it was a, a 51% uh, of whites who said, yeah, we, we think it's probably real. 29% said, no, it's not real. But that's not the point of what I'm trying to tell you. What I'm trying to tell you is that in this poll, they also asked these same folk, how do you think change can be affected in this country? And so they named all these different agencies that might affect change, federal government, local government, schools, businesses, um, nonprofits, all these different groups, right? Well, um, it was really fascinating because every group agreed on how these 10 or so organizations should be ranked. Give or take a few numbers or two, right? They agreed who was going to do the most change, who would have the least change. You'll be shocked to know no one had confidence in the federal government. No one thinks that change is coming out of the White House, right? But do you know who everyone said was going to be the most likely to affect change in our country? 
not the church. Not the church. I haven't quite made sense of this one. It's they, everyone across the board, believed that small businesses were going to be the answer to our problems. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Somebody needs to school me on why that is. But it saddens me. It saddens me. Because the work of the church is reconciliation. I mean, the whole arc of Scripture is the story of God reconciling all things, all of creation to God's very self. I believe, I believe that all things will be reconciled. I believe that we are given the power to bind and loose the power of God's grace and the, for the building up of God's kingdom. If I don't believe that, I need to hang up this microphone and whatever and go open a small business, I guess. But it is our responsibility, and what does it look like? It looks like powerlessness for us. The Episcopal Church is not real good about powerlessness. I don't know if you guys are, but that's not our niche. What does it look like for an institution to go, to go powerless? What does it look like for people to be vulnerable? We have some lessons to learn from Ecclesia. What does it look like for us to cut out things that are stumbling blocks, to go and seek the lost sheep? To reconcile black and white and rich and poor and powerful and vulnerable. Episcopal and Baptist, let me tell you that one's possible because it's happened right here. <laughs> but progressive and fundamentalist. Republican and democratic. What does it look like for that, for us to live into that kingdom of God? Because we're never going to be free from one another. We can only be free with one another in Christ. Like Mr. Smalley, we're going to have to become childlike, to remember our innocence, to let go of whatever hate it is that we carry in our hearts, whatever things we deem unforgivable. And I have a list. Whatever those are, if I want to know true freedom, I have to figure out how to how to yield to a grace that is beyond my understanding. And trust that in God's, God's grace, that, that justice and mercy will be reconciled in ways that will bring us all to our knees. Not in grief, because it didn't go our way, but in gratitude for the ways that we are amazed at how he reconciles us with to one another with love beyond belief. So that's my prayer for me and for you. Whatever ways it is that we need to yield to that reconciling power of God, we will. So that we will know ourselves as one with nothing less than love itself.